All right. Uh, I'm Herb Leibowitz. I'm the editor and publisher of Parnassus, uh, sometimes known by its longer title, Parnassus Poetry and Review. Um, we've been publishing for 15 years, which is uh, perhaps too long for any literary magazine to uh, be on the scene. Um, before we uh, start talking about the issues that uh, pertain to a literary magazine which is devoted almost exclusively to reviews and essays about poetry, mostly contemporary poetry, uh, rather than publishing new poems. Let me introduce the other members of the panel. On my right, representing the tribe of Ben and Benita is Cynthia McDonald, uh, who is the author of many books of poems, uh, amputations, transplants, holes, alternate means of transport, uh, pruning the annuals, and whose uh, new book of poems, as yet untitled, will be published by Knopf in 1990. On my left is Judith Gleason, who is uh, a PhD in literature, uh, an Africanist, an anthropologist, who for Parnassus has uh, written on everything from Rilke and children's poetry to the goddess, African goddess, Oya, Carolyn Forche, ethnopoetics, and the uh, sort of quasi-Aborigine um, writer, B. Wangar. Uh, she is the author of Leaf and Bone, which are African praise poems, Agotime, which is a wonderful sort of fictionalized uh, anthropology of the migration of the goddess Agotime from Africa to, I believe from Dahomey to Brazil. Uh, Santeria about uh, the voodoo cults in the South Bronx and places like that. And her most recent book published by Shambhala called uh, Oya. Uh, on my extreme left uh, is Ross Feld who is a poet, novelist, literary critic. His first volume of, was Plum Poems, published by Jonathan Williams' Jargon Society. He has written three novels. Um, I should have memorized them, but I didn't. Years Out, published by Knopf. Only Shorter, published by North Point. And in May, his latest novel, uh, Shapes Mistaken, will also be published by uh, North Point. Ross has uh, also written in a very versatile way for Parnassus uh, on Jack Spicer, Rather Creeley, Eugenio Montale, Apollinaire, and uh, if I could get him to write in every issue, uh, I would have him. But uh, one of the problems of, of trying to lure novelists and, and poets is that they always say that they uh, have other business to attend to, which is writing their poems and novels, and there's usually no comeback for that. Um, I thought I'd begin by just telling very, very briefly how the magazine got started. Um, but I think what I'll do is, since I made a pilgrimage today to uh, Nine Ridge Road, William Carlos Williams' house, I thought I'd begin with a little quotation from his autobiography. He was a great fan of the little magazine. He believed it was his salvation. And he says there, the little magazine is something I have always fostered. But without it, I myself would have been early silence. To me, 
It is one magazine, not several. It is a continuous magazine, the only one I know with an absolute freedom of editorial policy and a succession of proprietorships that follows a democratic rule. There is absolutely no dominating policy permitting anyone to dictate anything. Well, I think that's probably a, a, a reference to T.S. Eliot, who was his great fete noir. When it is in any way successful, it is because it fills a need in someone's mind to keep going. When it dies, someone else takes it up in some other part of the country, quite by accident, out of a desire to get the writing down on paper. I have wanted to see established some central or sectional agency which would recognize and where possible support little magazines. I was wrong. It must be a person who does it, a person, a fallible person, subject to devotions and accidents. Um, well, we now have state councils on the arts and uh, central agencies which do help literary magazines survive, and I know that Parnassus could not have uh, lasted this long without the help of the NEA and New York State Council on the Arts. Um, but I think that Williams is absolutely right, that nobody can dictate uh, anything. Uh, the idea of, of literary magazines as a succession of proprietorships, of course, uh, a lot of people think that they are filling a need, uh, and if you look at the, the number of subscribers, most uh, editors will say that uh, the statistics anyway say that you're filling nobody's need but your own ego. However, um, when you are writing, a, a, if you are editing a magazine uh, which publishes poetry, obviously from the poet's point of view, who is unknown or little known, uh, wants to get his work out, it's tremendously valuable. But what place is there for a magazine which devotes itself to uh, reviews and essays? Uh, it never occurred to me to actually um, uh, found this magazine. The idea belonged to Stanley Lewis, who was the proprietor of a wonderful secondhand bookshop called the Parnassus Bookshop on the Upper West Side. And he uh, dabbled in um, small press, and among the works put out was a volume of poetry. And being full of uh, idealism and innocence and nobility, he sent the book out to be reviewed, and it got no reviews. And he was absolutely perplexed. And so when I went, wandered in one day, he said, what do you think of the idea of, of uh, putting out a magazine devoted exclusively to poetry reviews? And I said, that's a terrible idea. Nobody would, nobody would want to uh, read it. And I was partly right and, of course, partly wrong. And then uh, when I told this idea to uh, my friend Nick Lyons, he said, it's a wonderful idea and you should do it, and so we decided to try it. The first uh, piece that I got in was a wonderful essay by Helen Vendler on Frank O'Hara, and I thought that this was the simplest thing in the world to be an editor. And then, uh, then of course, the rude awakening came. <laughs> now, um, I'm gonna open our discussion by reading two quotations, one by Elizabeth Hardwick and the other by William Stafford. I think they are quite characteristic of the, uh, the writers and, and, of, uh, and really are germane to our discussion tonight. Elizabeth Hardwick says, sweet, bland commendations fall everywhere upon the scene. A book is born into a puddle of treacle. 
the brine of hostile criticism is only a memory. Uh, William Stafford, so Western poet from Oregon, says, um, now Elizabeth Hardwick is a practicing critic as well as a novelist. Uh, Stafford says, it has sometimes occurred to me that the literary world would be much improved if critics just wrote the literature in the first place, thus avoiding the roundabout process in which the author struggles inside the complex of his book, like Leo Cohen contending with myriad problems, while the critic whisks through the finished book in a few minutes and immediately spots the gross blunders the author has taken a year or more to make, unquote. And uh, while I was uh, leafing through a catalog today from Columbia University Press, I, they published uh, on the bottom uh, from one of their own, I guess it's a book of literary anecdotes or, or quotations, one by Christopher Hampton, the, uh, the play English playwright uh, who adapted Les Andons de Ruse. He says, um, asking a working writer what he thinks about critics is like asking a lamppost what it feels about dogs. Um, I think I'll begin by asking the members of the panel to uh, react whether they think that Elizabeth Hardwick or William Stafford uh, is nearer to the truth or uh, if they both have hold of different ends of the truth. Uh, somebody want to start? seems to me that um, it's just two kinds of innocence that uh, there is a, a, a body of criticism that exists to uh, put something in place, a big thing in place, a big literary event. And, and there I can see, I, I would say that Hardwick is right. I mean, Big literary events get treated very gingerly, um, but it seems to me that most criticism is really uh, is not meek at all and is not timid, and it's just stupid. And, and as as stupid criticism goes, it it really hits home. Uh, Stafford's Stafford's things, I don't know. I mean, uh, there is. I think that for some reason, having been both a poet and, and a prose writer, I think that um, poets tend to be so astounded that they're getting any kind of attention that if the attention is not, uh, does not seem molded around to their particular concerns in that particular book, then they feel that, uh, that really a great injustice has been done. And I think that that's, novelists may not feel that as much because there's a kind of independent part of fiction, which is just the story, and that will appeal to, just will appeal to writers, or appeal to readers on its own. Uh, who cares if it's loudly written? Does what happens to this person or that? The poets, I think, are, are without that kind of protection. Well, uh, after the uh, second issue of Parnassus came out, um, uh, in the first issue, when a, a first book had been reviewed, and rather negative review. And the uh, poet then published an article in a little magazine called uh, 
the, about Parnassus, the uh, sheriff who reads poetry, the implication being that uh, I had somehow or other taken a disliking, and it was, wasn't too long after Bull Connor had done his obscene things <laughs> in Birmingham. And uh, I'm not so sure that I, I would agree about, the, uh, uh, about this. I think when I talked often, tried to get poets to write for the magazine, um, at least three out of four will say, if they're willing to even write, and many, many just decline saying that they cannot write critical prose, uh, they will say, I can only write about somebody whose work I like. And usually that means rather undiscriminating uh, admiration. So um, I, I've tried to avoid turning Parnassus into a treacle factory. And what I, I, I think th that the, there is something very exhilarating about somebody who, who's not trying to, to debunk uh, in order to uh, enjoy elevating his own ego at the expense of the, the writer, but just simply because any kind of literary discourse requires somebody who is willing to say, uh, that even if they're mistaken, that, that the, the, the work fails in many different ways. But you can see that an editor often interferes and doesn't allow his contributors to have their say. All right. Uh, I feel the, I am more interested in Stafford's remark. Uh, I'm not at all drawn to the first. I'm interested in it, but it seems to me a little self-pitying. Uh, after all, just because it took so long, uh, that's no excuse. Uh, the writing is to communicate. The craftsmanship is part of the process. Uh, myself, the sort of, criticism I admire, sits right to my left, um, it is a criticism which assents at the core of being to that author being written about and then is able to pick up places where there is a weakness uh, to show where perhaps the knots were poorly tied or made of the wrong stuff, fiber, in the context of a very strong inner ascent. I have to, I have a kind of concrete mind and I need to think in particulars. And for example, reading, doing a little homework for this event, I knew Ross Feld was going to be on the panel and so I read some of his essays and for example, what he does with Montale, this is going to be no news to Star Black, uh, but he acts as a kind of high bun to the haiku of the poet. It's that close. His prose interpretation runs along like a journey which is leading you to the lines of Montale that he's discussing. And I find that very beautiful. And he's not afraid to show in the later poetry where there is a falling off because his ascent is so strong. But then still going like uh, a basho taking a trip to various shrines as the poems of the poet being reviewed really are, if you're a pious person. 
uh, is able to show how the growth of prose in Montale at the end serves a very, very important function having to do with time. So uh, this is not so simple as just knocking uh, a poet for having uh, constructed uh, poorly. Not at all. Well, I think that to respond to the quotes that you read and to um, my fellow panelists is impossible when we lump everything under the <laughs> word criticism. Uh, what, is, what are we talking about? Uh, uh, are we talking about the kind of criticism that Parnassus publishes? I think Elizabeth Hardwick, with her treacle factory, was not talking about this kind of criticism. I think she was talking about publicity, PR. And certainly, the poets who, I mean, your story about the starting of Parnassus, the book that is never reviewed, the wish is not for some kind of uh, gross or uh, disgraceful attention. Yes, we do want our books read, and how do they get read? And if they're not read, do they get published? And that's, that's a whole enterprise. And it is rather like a factory in a way. Uh, and on that level, perhaps we hope for treacle. It's very uninteresting, however. I mean, all of us who have been reviewed know those good reviews that say, amazingly glowing things, and aren't they wonderful? Don't we love them? But they're really not interesting for us. I mean, unless they hone in on something that is about what we're doing. I don't, mm -hmm. uh, I don't understand the comment about uh, um, what was it? I, I can't remember. It may have been one of your quotes, but that it has to relate to the, I th no, I think it was you, Ross, who said, you know, it, for poets, it has to relate to what they're doing. Well, I don't understand any writer who, do, who wants criticism that doesn't relate to what they're doing, story or no story, unless I misunderstood you. No, no, I'm, I, in the, in the sense of what they're doing is what, what, they, what they really want is what they want to be doing. You see, I mean, I think, uh. that, I think that a lot of, I think a lot of writers feel, well, this person missed my intention. And I think it's important for, it is important for a critic to be able to, to guess beyond failure, which is just a human grace note, mm -hmm. and will always be in every, in every book, but beyond the failure that this was trying to be done. And it's important to note that. I think it's also important for a writer to realize that criticism is writing too. And therefore it's filled with, I mean, Sam Boeuf, was considered the greatest critic in, Fran in France, uh, maybe ever, once said, criticism is whatever I think next. <laughs> and, I mean, and that, I think, really does hold, uh, because there is the same kind of stumbling in criticism. And if the stumbling, I think, in some way is candid, not like, duh, duh, maybe I don't mm -hmm. think this, or maybe I think that, but just, in a sense, goes, goes along with the, with the shape and the plasticity of the work, then I think it's interesting. Well, I do too, and I think that's another function of criticism, and one, that's why I was sort of saying we need to think about that. Uh, criti 
criticism can be to uh, shape a general aesthetic, to, uh, to try and understand what's happening, all these things that really go beyond fo tight focus on a book um, in, in the way that perhaps uh, the author may dream about uh, that kind of attention. Um, and also may distort the work being reviewed sometimes to serve the, the general um, creative force of the critic, which sweeps things along sometimes and gets them made into new things for that purpose. And I think that's all very interesting. And, and one of, I think Parnassus does a, a number of these things. It does not, it seems to me, work along the treacle factory principle. And usually the treacle factory is short. I mean, the, the, just the length of the tension in Parnassus, I think, avoids that. Because you really can't say anything interesting in a, in a treacle factory. That doesn't seem to go very well, but I think you know. But one of the, uh, one of the problems, if, uh, if you, anybody made a, a kind of study of the kinds of books and, and the number of books under review in the earlier issues as opposed to those later on, uh, they would discover that we have shifted away from omnibus reviews, uh, which in a way is to the detriment of certain uh, young poets or, or poets who have published their second and third or fourth, fourth book um, in favor of just one of those long retrospective reviews, which I often li like to liken to a, um, a, a catalog for a show, uh, the, the essay, uh, uh, at the Museum of Modern Art, a really good one, where the critic digs into the whole career and views the work under, under review in light of everything that has gone, gone before. Uh, I find uh, that the review, I can get better reviewers to write at length and interestingly, if they are given that assignment, it is just very, very difficult to find um, good writers to be willing to, to, to handle the third or fourth book. And of course, we all know and we all ritualistically wring our hands and deplore uh, at the same time we realize that in a democracy, uh, all these books of poetry that get published, there's no possible way that a, a semi-annual, even a magazine which has gotten fatter and fatter over the years can begin to, to, to handle uh, all of that. So uh, at some point, and then, then there are all the small presses uh, who rightly said that the, a lot of often that the, the work that was coming out of small presses was just as good as that coming out of university presses or, or the big commercials. There's, there was nothing that, uh, intrinsically superior to a work coming out of Athenaeum uh, to something from Copper Canyon or, or even a smaller press. So it's just very hard to cast your net wide and, and to get all of those. I know my own personal preference has been for those writers who have a distinctive style. I do not want to impose my style, that would be foolish, uh, but if I could get, it's, it's like I'm an impresario for an opera, and if I could get eight gorgeous voices to sing uh, in, in a particular issue and blend as an ensemble, 
then, then I w will have done my, my job. Obviously, I cannot do it, because on, 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 on my right, I have the academic writers. And it, in many ways, a lot of our poets are in the academy themselves. They have students in the academy. And then there are those professors who write about poetry, uh, contemporary poetry, who are also there. Uh, their prose tends to be, uh, um, well, you know I don't that I'm on your right? Are you pointing at me? <laughs> no, no. I've only written I, one I, review for you. I don't. I, I, I know. I'm feeling progressively uneasy. No, 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 I'm not at all referring. I'm not oh, at all good. referring. <laughs> referring. I'm just. I'm talking right. to PhDs. No. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, the journalistic um, poetry reviewing. Uh, is subject to, to other things, other problems and, and, and influences. Uh, how can you write about three different poets who often have nothing to do with each other for the Times Book Review or the Washington Post Book World and, um, and, and yoke them together? And, and you have about 500 words, if you're lucky, about each one. If you're a Pound or a Berlioz, you can make of the feuilleton an art form, and you can indeed some encapsulate controversy and, and, but both of those men were absolutely authoritative. They were brilliant writers. They weren't afraid of, of shaking up the world and they were, they were uh, uh, and they were also had their own agendas that they were trying to advance. Parnassus has often been criticized for being eclectic. That is, we don't take one point of view. We're not, uh, you know, sulfur has a recognizable editorial policy. My editorial policy is not to have, in one sense, an editorial policy except as much excellent writing about poetry as possible. Um, picking up on what Cynthia said, um, let's raise a second question. Of what use to a practicing poet, let's say, uh, would a review be? What might one learn? I once took a uh, drove Denise Levitov out to Staten Island to a poetry reading. And she said unequivocally that she had never gotten a poetry review that had taught her anything. Would you agree? That seems evident. Uh, I d that's not what you were asking. No, that's not of what course. I um, Well. No, I, I wouldn't agree. And in fact, it sounds a bit fulsome to say this in this company and in this, on this panel. But I have uh, found the reviews I've gotten in Parnassus the most useful to me. And uh, not always in a pleasing way. But you know, there is the, the moment of recognition where your own fears about your work, the things that you know are perhaps both its strengths and its weaknesses, and that when it's the strengths are pushed too far, they become the weaknesses, um, are found, are discovered, and you see that somebody really knows that. I'm sure that all of you who write have had that happen when you share work with, with other poets writers, fiction writers, critics, whatever your genre may be. And you've had these little moments where you think, I wonder if this spot, spot's working. I think it is. I've worked on it. I've worked on it. And somebody goes right to that spot and says, mm-hmm. 
And when that happens in a review, I think that that's really useful for the writer. And you've got to have length. I have never seen it happen in a newspaper review, even some of the longer ones, which may be quite accurate about the work. I, I haven't learned anything. I've sometimes been very pleased by them, but I haven't learned anything. And um, I, I really do think that Parnassus serves that function. And, and I've been trying to think as I praise it, well, what other places do what Parnassus does? And the answer is that there it will be an occasional essay somewhere which does something similar, but not continuously, not in this context, not so that you exist, as Herb says he's tried to do, in a body of thought in a in a in a whole your review is in a matrix of of other reviews all thinking about what's happening in poetry, what's being written. I think it's very different from the occasional piece or even issue that tries to address those concerns. I'm a, a provocative idea occasionally occurs to me about what we were talking about, about omnib you mentioned omnibus reviews. In Before You Reformed, I once did one of uh, an omnibus review for you, and I read 75 small press books, of which I reviewed five. So there were 70 that I didn't mention, and, uh, and they were almost entirely, with the exception of maybe 10%, 15%, they were almost first books, almost all first books. And ever since then, it's occurred to me on maybe odd days, but it's occurred to me that maybe first books should not be reviewed, that they should be perhaps noticed. And we all, we've, we've all had first books, so we all know that how happy we would be with such a suggestion, which is not at all. But Maybe first books should just exist as, as the first step, as the announcement, and the announcement of a talent, which one can say, I think, you know, if, if one feels it. But when I, if I, I can write for, I mean, to write about a dead poet is wonderful because you have the whole corpse, essentially. <laughs> I mean, corpus and corpse, right? And, but, poet that I find myself drawn to, whether negatively or positively, I sometimes, my little trick occasionally, if it works, is to think of it as though it was a painter, and that I'm, I'm, that I'm reviewing a painter's work. And a painter's work, you could get no sense from one, seeing one picture. You could probably not get no sense from seeing one first exhibition. Picasso would show you not much, the first, the first Barcelona but with the Montali, for instance, it's all there, and you can see when, what colors go with what and what forms go with what. And I think that with a first book, it's a little almost unfair for a first book poet and a first book novelist. Poet may be more, more, so more unfair because it's more self-encapsulated to be considered against some other first book writer. It, it, it seems terribly unfair to me or, or pointless. Could, could I? Um 
disagree. I think that I would say first and maybe even second books should only be reviewed if what one has to say is largely favorable. I see no point in taking a beginning effort and saying this is horrible. If it's horrible, why deal with it? We don't have room for the kind of reviewing we need. But there are some extraordinary first books, books that really give you a sense of shock, the shock of pleasure that this is a first book and look what's been done in it. And I would certainly want to pay attention to that. And so I wouldn't want to make it a kind of categorical rule. But I do think to be measuring one against the other and sort of have a little horse race of first books, no, that's probably not very useful. And by the way, the review that I did for her many years ago, my own first book was coming out. I should never have said yes. It was agonizing. I walked around the same block so many times agonizing about those five or six books because I felt each word that I said, well, what if somebody said that about me when I didn't like them? And I think that it's hard to take a miscellaneous group as you had to and as I did too and try to find a common theme and then praise and not criticize too much and so forth. But I still would stand up for first review books. Well, I like your point about being afraid of the review. Of course, that's what makes you a moral being right there and there, carrying those first books in your hand. I think I agree with you that it's a lot easier to see a development. A much more sensitive review can be written. Again, thinking concretely, there's a review coming out by Rachel Hodges on Jane Cooper's work. And that is a work I myself have followed over the years as a friend of hers. And it was interesting to see someone who is more outside, I mean, hasn't known her through this period, see that work as development, as a continual peeling away of extra things as she grows into an extremely self-conscious poet. That can only be done of Jane Cooper's latest work. She has a slim corpus, but it's always in the process of revision, whatever that corpus is. My own personal experience with the grab bag of books was writing an article on children's poetry. And I took everything that there was and took everybody's advice, all the nice librarians in the children's rooms of the public libraries around. And that was a very interesting exercise because what I came up with after this winnowing process was real poetry and a poet. I discovered, I think, as a poet. And that's a kind of interesting story because Valerie Wirth Balke had written children's poetry and been published very handsomely, but she had never been treated as a poet. And she was thrilled by Parnassus, by the fact that she could appear for the first time as a poet along with other poets, although at that time she wrote for herself. And she was thrilled by Parnassus. 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 And she was thrilled
for poetry, I mean for, for kids. And uh, it gave her confidence, I think, that review to bring out a lot of poetry for adults that she's been working on ever since. Uh, again, that was a nice human, it's not like reviewing a corpse. Uh, there was a tremendous, uh, I guess you call them literary friendships, uh, which began because what she was interested in was being seen as a poet, and I swear I had read maybe not 70, well, yeah, at least 75 uh, books of poetry for children recently published. But it was also the idea of having her, um, her intentions uh, seen. That's very important. And I think uh, those two of us in, who work in psychology know what it means to someone to be seen, to be really seen. Basta. Uh, I, I would not want to make it the policy of the magazine to uh, exclude uh, such books. Uh, in a way, uh, that would turn turn us into a, a museum, um, only hanging, uh, well, that's an ambiguous uh, participle, that, uh, that <laughs> are, but um, uh, after all, the, the uh, 100 years or 200 years from now, a magazine will be looked at for, in, in a sense, the uh, shrewdness of its uh, choices of, uh, uh, not that you're a, you're a, a racetrack tout, uh, you who, who can honestly say who's going to be, be read? Uh, I'm not the least bit interested in the current fad about canon formation, um, which seems to exercise uh, a, a lot of, of people in this age of uh, deconstruction. Um, but I, I, I think one of the problems for me, and I think uh, uh, Cynthia probably teaching in an MFA program knows that in a way MFAs have become the universal scapegoat of poetry and they, they are being uh, loaded with all of the uh, sins and driven out, well, not into the desert but to, I guess to a, a, a post in some uh, small community college somewhere where they, they, they continue this. I think we're all very uneasy, and so are some of the poets themselves, with the, the kind of impoverishment of experience that this seems to be. Um, it, it was wonderful for William Carlos Williams to be a doctor to treat children. Uh, he got different kinds of material. He saw people in different ways. It was not just, po I, I don't agree with Harold Bloom, that poetry is just made out of other, other poetry anxiety of influence uh, notwithstanding. Um, we need these voices who are, who are willing to, to find different corners of life. And uh, so uh, that's, but that's a problem that uh, is, is in the culture. And a magazine like ours can only deal with the, the consequences of it. One of the ways in which we've dealt with it is by paying a great deal of attention to foreign poetry. So uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, poetry as translation, because if this is not a uh, gold or silver age of American poetry, I think it is certainly uh, an age in which literary translation is flourishing, and I think it's very much like a, a mulch 
uh, out of which uh, other great poetry, uh, um, American poetry, uh, may may come. Um, we have, due to our policy of publishing contradictory uh, things, once published an essay by Tess Gallagher in which she deplored all of this. And she felt that we should just sort of stick to our, our own uh, American backyard and there's plenty of good poetry there. It doesn't mean that she didn't read Naruto or some, somebody like, like that. She thought it was distracting American poets from their main, main work. Um, uh, would you like to comment uh, on that? Uh, everybody here uh, on my left has written about foreign, <laughs> foreign poets. Uh, and Cynthia, did you, did you translate? I don't translate, but I'd like to comment about what you said before we Have you written about any foreign poetry? <laughs> yes, lots. <laughs> uh, I remember my name was, when I used to be a singer, my name was on the door when I went to a place called the Music Academy of the West, and a Chinese girl came out and looked at me, and she said, my maiden name was Lee. She looked very disappointed, and she said, oh, I thought you were another Chinese. So yes, I have. Uh, uh, I think what the mix of uh, poetry from other places that's in Parnassus is one of the things that I particularly value about it. But I think what you just said has, uh, is so far off the mark, I have to speak to it. Um, I don't know where to start. You know, it's one of those things where so many things are aroused in me, I don't know where to begin. First of all, um, don't want to get into a long thing about writing programs, but writing programs have a lot of variety of writers in them and a lot of ex different experience. We have in our graduate program an immigration lawyer, uh, you know, a whole range of experience, and those people aren't all going to go and teach writing in community colleges. Um, the point is that however you arrive at it, you get a lot of competent poets in any civilization, in any way of approaching it, writing programs or not. And th that's the floor on which other poets stand. Competence, craft, a whole range of things. Do we not, do you think that these other cultures that are in Parnassus, the poets, the, the foreign poets come from a group where everyone writes as they do. How many people from each country are in Parnassus? If you took the same number, allowing for population variation, obviously there are fewer people in Holland than there are in the United States. I've never done this, so I'm just making this up. I have never counted. But we're taking the best of each of those countries. And I think we have the best too. I think that I really disagree with the statement that this is the rich mulch for American poetry. It is, but not because American poetry doesn't have equivalent figures in it. So I want to say that just to argue with your general statement. And then I'll defer to the people who have done a lot more <laughs> reviewing of that and, and translating and so forth. Uh, well, I'd like to uh, begin with the question, what, how to present the, uh, the foreign poet. I, too, very much respect your policy. Um, 
certainly the language is important. And here again, to be particular, uh, Burkitt's uh, wrote a charming review of Pasternak uh, showing his consternation. He couldn't decide between three different translations which had appeared, and it was his job to review. So uh, he got a Russian poet to read out loud a minor poem, which and then give a literal translation. And he worked on the poem in Russian with help in order to get a sense of what Pasternak is all about. And with Pasternak, that is terribly important because apparently, as Burkett put it in beautiful word, there is uh, a sonorous aquifer under uh, everything that Pasternak wrote the language itself, its roots, its sounds, is what really generates a Pasternakian poem. Now that took Burkitt's a lot of work. Uh, and it came out uh, so well, and it came out with a great deal of integrity. He had at the end to choose, throw out one of the uh, translations of Pasternak, suggest the competing virtues, really, of the other two works. And at the same time, he gave us uh, a wonderful feeling for Pasternak as a poet, that aspect of Pasternak being very much neglected. Now, again, I come back to the language. Uh, I thought, well, I can't be so biased in favor of Ross Feld here. I got to read the other review of Montale. There was a second review of Montali that, that came out after uh, Ross's, and so I went through it, and I think it has uh, beautiful virtues also. It's about uh, Montali not as a musician, but as a person who's sin, or a poet whose syntax uh, links uh, images and asks very important questions about images uh, in the I was upset because even in um, Alan Williamson's review, the verbs were not put in the correct place in the Montali poem. And it's very important where you put the verb. And so uh, I happen to know enough Italian to read that. Uh, so I would say it's great to present the foreign poets, but I think we simply have to be sensitive to the language. Uh, what else can I say? Uh, there is also, when it comes to more exotic poets, a, a need to be very, very sensitive to context. And um, I read, it's interesting, you talked about Sulphur's policy. At least Parnassus has published three different uh, reviews of Jerry Rothenberg's work. I myself am uh, very grateful to Jerry Rothenberg and his Technicians of the Sacred. And I even wrote uh, on it. But on the other hand, there was uh, by Michael Heller a very uh, considered review where 
he contrasted the kind of reworkings that Rothenberg has done with the presentation of Ainu shamanic poetry uh, by some man who had really studied it in its context uh, in Japan. And this book was published by uh, Princeton University Press. And I began, I was really drawn up short by, thought, by that, and I said, sure, it's absolutely true. Uh, you can't just throw shamanic uh, verses into our midst. Well, you can, in a way, but you also need someone else who is going to do the kind of work on these texts that uh, the guy who wrote on Ainu poetry did. Now, in addition to that, you'd have to be a little bit sensitive to the Ainu language so that you could convey to a reader how it sounded in Ainu. That's a big problem because the yeah. number of people who uh, <laughs> know the Ainu language uh, <laughs> I imagine probably the very, issue very limited. To do that. <laughs> um, the Burkertson, pa the Pasternak, uh, was able to get a transliteration of the poems, of the poem uh, uh, from Joseph Brodsky, so he had at least that to work with. Um, it was great. I, I think that a lot of, a lot of people are, uh, you don't have to be an expert in the language, even to know the language. Uh, Seamus Heaney does not, as far as I know, know either uh, Czech or um, Polish, but uh, he wrote just absolutely wonderful essays on Big New Herbert and uh, Roslov Holub for, for Parnassus. Um, uh, when I am uh, dealing with a new writer, and um, I give them my usual admonition about uh, writing in a uh, belletristic style, um, I often say, if you can get hold of it, use that as a model, not to, to copy it or to imitate it, but just simply to sort of see that you can talk about ideas and, and, and poetry, which we all passionately love, in a kind of prose, which does not um, trivialize or debase the poetry itself. Um, that's, of course, much easier to try to, uh, to get than uh, to aim for than to actually um, get. Um, Ross, do you want to? Uh, I just wanted to say that I think that the uh, to write about poetry in 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 a language that isn't one's native language is is an interesting and a useful thing just because it just sends the whole idea of what poetry is in such stark outline. Uh, the anxiety one has. I mean, V. S. Pritchett, for instance, that knows no Russian and has been criticized. Strafing, you know, strafingly uh, over the years for writing about Chekhov and Dostoevsky. And Tolstoy, well, he doesn't actually read the language, and there's, there's nothing to say about that except that the Esperger has written the best stuff about Chekhov, Tolstoy, and any other Russian writer than any other English speaker ever has. And I think that, but I think that his anxiety will, will finally translate into a sensitivity to either what the writer is finally saying, mm -hmm. if there is a quote-unquote message, which there may not be, or secondly, the felicities of style which would transcend and make a work great, like Dostoevsky. I mean, you don't have to be Russian to read Dostoevsky, obviously. Uh, and so I think that when you're reading, 
if you're a specialist and you know the ANU language and you have said, look, this stuff just doesn't wash because this form is not, <laughs> you know, not the right form in ANU, then that's, that's interesting. That's interesting, but, it, but if I'm writing about it and I, I'm knowing that I really would be lost if they want, somebody asked me for directions in ANU, <laughs> then I think that, that you have to go towards what might be more lasting in the work beyond its just linguistic properties. And I think that's why it's interesting for critics to write about other kinds of language and language, you know, work in other languages. You know, to say that uh, the verb needs to come in a certain place, I mean, translation is always compromise, compromise, compromise. And when you're working with sound and you're working with what then doesn't sound like pidgin English because you put the verbs in a certain place, I mean, that's the whole dilemma the whole enterprise and so it's hard to pick out certain things and say well this isn't a good translation because it may or may not be I think it I'd, I'm really curious and it's a whole other discussion but you know do you like the translations that that make you say this is wonderful work and they're really somewhere between translation and What's the word I want? You know, uh, imitation or whatever. The Lowell, uh, like the Lowell yeah, yeah, the like the Lowell thing, and some would say the Bly translations are are, are almost like that. So, uh, do you end up with something that's magnificent in English but isn't as faithful? You know all those questions. Again, we, we probably shouldn't go into them in terms of Parnassus, but um, none of them mean that it it's we shouldn't have the work. We need to have the work. We need to have it talked about in Parnassus. We need to have as much of it as we can get. And we do have one great asset, and it's the reason the multiple reviews, I think, are useful. Multiple translations are useful. In mm -hmm. the end, if you put them all together, you may yeah, have yeah. something in your head and your mind and your spirit that comes close as close as you can if you don't speak Russian or Ainu or whatever it is. <laughs> or Italiano. Uh, <laughs> I think it matters if the verb is at the end of the line. If the verb ends the line, to me, that is a charge. Yeah, I'm not uh, disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that's that important. compromises make it difficult. Sure. I don't know about Ainu, about their verbs, but Italian. They may not have any verbs. <laughs> they don't have <laughs> verbs. <laughs> It, it's also. <laughs> We're kidding. It, it's also been been mentioned. That's right. Yeah, before that. Yeah. Uh, that sometimes the poetry that we do read from foreign writers, are is, the ones that. Uh, seem most like American poetry, at the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean that's a that's a very very difficult charge to defend against because one never knows. I mean, you are conditioned by American poetry, certainly if you're an American writer or American literature in general, and who's to say that Milos or Herbert are, are not acceptable to us because they sound like American, other American writers? I don't think that really holds too far, but it always is a, fa it is a factor, certainly. I mean, one wouldn't want to, if you found a, uh, a, you know, a French, uh, decadent writer, 
you wouldn't be running, I don't know how much, how quickly one would be running to translate French decadence, and French decadence is not, at the moment, a fashionable current in, in American writing, or decadence, period. Maybe it is, but maybe it always is. <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, and I think, I think that though that always has to be kept in mind, and one never knows. I mean, you just don't know how, why you're responding to any particular kind of poetry. And you don't know how, how much the translation is distorting it in that particular way, mm -hmm. as when we look at Homer, for example, we see constantly that the fashion of the day changes the translation and, in fact, gives you less of an archaic sense than than your own than work in your own language, which maintains its own style and becomes archaic at a certain point. Um, I, I'd like to add, I think, an interesting kind of cultural criticism can be written in that vein. Uh, and I'm thinking of an article that was in an early Parnassus. Boy, I've been reading Parnassi uh, on Paz, Octavia Paz by Sutherland, who talks about the influence of various European writers, French writers, Mallarmé, for example, uh, on Paz and his conception of uh, the void. And this was instructive to me, it really was, that somebody knew Paz's work enough to be able to sit down and tell me uh, what he thought of uh, Mallarmé and how he had somehow embraced uh, that along with nothings from other places. So uh, that's useful and then we can say, all right, uh, what is it about Octavio Paz that appeals to us right now, because I think he does. And it may be precisely this eclecticism, part French symbolism and uh, part, part uh, Aztec or our Or our anxiety about yeah. that languages, obviously there are other languages, which means poetry can be written yeah. in another language which we don't understand. Now that alone is a kind of an anxious moment for a poet mm -hmm. because it makes language seem pretty much interchangeable in many ways and a lot less important than we wish uh -huh. we wish it to be. And I think that's useful because that undercuts a certain kind of self-satisfaction. Absolutely. Um, I, I think we ought to entertain questions from the audience. I just want to uh, point out one other aspect of the uh, magazine, um, partly to avoid I think for any magazine to to uh, survive even five years, you you need as much variety as possible, and the infusion of uh, of uh, new writers and new voices um, it's not easy, and uh, one is always going around asking people whose writing one admires to make suggestions, and sometimes they're they're good, sometimes they're not. But um, to diversify the format, we have from time to time published supplements. Since uh, music is a uh, sort of a passion of mine, we've had um, one on Charles Ives, one on um, Virgil Thompson, and an entire issue devoted to words and music. And um, then we've had uh, the most successful uh, issue in our 15 years was our women and poetry 
Uh, and it's not at all surprising why, because there is a, a, a fierce, uh, loyal, and book-buying audience uh, among feminists. It's one of the uh, one of the few few groups that a, a writer can count on if you if you appeal to them. Um, and I think that that is really quite um, quite wonderful. The the one of the problems, in a sense, even after 15 years, is I don't even I don't know who my audience is. I'm not read by every academic. It's not assigned in uh, in, mo in most courses. Um, I know that I don't even know how many poets read it. Um, so when you're doing that, um, it's a bit of a Maybe no, we have to find out who reads it. You know, yeah. that's and we are we are also uh, in the process of um, we're going to publish in 1990 uh, a special issue on uh, the long poem, um, uh, in which we again will uh, we are inviting people to submit long poems. Um, most of the time, I feel that that since there are so many other magazines which publish verse. Why should Parnassus do it as well? But on on uh, a, a topic, I think as uh, fascinating as the long poem, and really as 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 important, um, I, the lyric will always be with us. And um, the lyric is—I don't think the lyric is uh, dead in America by any means. We'll be publishing an, an essay by Evan Bolin uh, about lyric poetry and lyric poets. Her examples are taken from American poetry, um, but I think the, to, to write a long poem is not just a sort of grandiose uh, American, um, sort of like an imperialistic act of the imagination, but rather uh, uh, something that uh, devoutly to be wished for. So uh, that's in our our future. Um, I just. Uh when I look at a book of poems and I look at the title uh, on the title page, um, it's like uh, looking at a menu when you're hungry, if they're good. And when I look at most magazines' titles, I don't feel that way. Uh, you know, I think that uh, when you realize that a magazine like The Atlantic now has these excerpts that are in huge type as if you aren't gonna be able to get yourself through the article or wanna read it unless it gives you a little blurb from the article every minute, you know? Well, that's so pervasive in our, in our magazine, in our periodical publishing. And uh, I, I feel, uh, this is, uh, is this a special yeah, issue? No, it's uh, uh, issue 14, listen to this, the Atlas of Civilization which is Seamus Haney on the big new Herbert. Either I'm nobody or I'm a nation, reader dove on Derek Walcott. <laughs> a vindication of being, Baron Wormser on Adam Zagajewski, who's my colleague in Houston. Um, among soft particles and charms, Diane Ackerman on Dylan Thomas. Subversal Virgil, variations on the Virgil Thompson controversy. Um, arousing wonder, bringing veneration, uh, a poet's Darwin, Ted Hughes' fearful greening, 
Sisters to Antigone, a song under all circumstances, etc. I mean, that really, those titles let you know a lot about what this, this periodical tries to do and how it does it. Anybody have any uh, questions to ask? If we had more subscribers, we would be able to afford to send out a questionnaire. But um, uh, I don't think people realize just how marginal uh, literary enterprises are unless you are born to wealth, as some literary magazines are, are founded by people who are millionaires and, and can do it. I mean, that's just a fact of life. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not coveting their their bank accounts. Um, it, but it is, it is a question that I think a writer always wants to know who his or, who or his or her audience is. Not to pander to the audience, but just to have some idea, just to get response. Now, one of the problems, for example, coming out as a semi-annual um, is that uh, if you publish something which is even very controversial and annoys a lot of people, um, you have to wait six months before it can be, the, that letter can <laughs> appear in the magazine, and by that time, e even the the, uh, the most uh, fiery um, person probably would have cooled off by by then. So it's so it is a a bit of a problem. Who would the, who would the questionnaire be sent to? Oh, it's all just a subscriber. No, I know. I, I, I'm not taking that as uh, I, I. I simply don't know. I had a conversation with uh, uh, Harry Ford uh, a few weeks ago, um, which I just asked him, um, how many books does he sell of a of one of his poets, and uh, he said, oh, maybe a thousand in hardcover to libraries, and if the poet is well known, like in Ashbury or somebody like that, then maybe five or 6,000 in um, paperback. And he said that um, W.S. Merwin's volume, The Lice, is still in print, and over the years it has sold 20,000 copies. Now, uh, you know, in, in a sense, that's, that, that's good. Um, on the other hand, in a country of over 250 million 
it's it's not and um, we all we all have these 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 moments of great melancholy when we w when we wish that America was different from what what it is but people who are people who are interested in poetry don't always buy volumes by poets let alone to buy to buy a, a, a magazine which writes reviews and essays you have to have a, a, a kind of a great what well, almost lunatic passion for 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 the art and to to learn to learn about it That the art of paraphrase. Yeah, why don't you do that? Why don't you come up to the mic? just asking the um, general sense of your reaction toward um, American poets um, drawing on foreign mythology or <coughs> foreign poetry and using it in writing their poems. Yeah, well, one poem I read by Kathy Pollock, she, she included, uh, in her poem, she integrated uh, the verses of the Chinese poets. Somebody on the panel. I I don't have any great reaction to it even. I mean, uh, in a work of art, things are drawn from everywhere and knowingly and unknowingly. Uh, that it comes from another culture, I don't consider that kind of cultural imperialism. I, I in a way, I kind of think that. I'm sure it's never done well enough. I mean, that would make sense, that it would never be done well enough because the tr translation would always be kind of... Uh, translation would always be kind of maladroit, and, and, but that would be figured into the whole thing. I mean, Pound, Pound doing, you know, Perseus or doing uh, uh, Chinese poetry is considered bad Chinese poetry, and it's bad Latin poetry, but it is pound, and so, you know, you take what you can get out of that. And, uh, I know that there is a, there is a feeling, I mean, about American poets, especially of a certain age, 
an age now gone with that, you know, it's the kind of, one has to have the integrity of one's own language and tend to that first, but I don't see robbing what you can, what you can rob. I mean, that's what art is there for, is to feed other arts, I think. And I think pound is important to mention because it began that simultaneity and uh, a moving of the center away from just the classics to encompass uh, not only the Chinese, but he uh, even talks about the lute of Gathira, which is a uh, Toninke myth from Africa via Frobenius. I would say since pound, we now have uh, become poetically, as indeed uh, communications have made us, one world, and we quote as readily from the Chinese uh, as from the Greek. That's the difference. And sometimes uh, I think um, poets find something temporarily missing in American life that they think they either hear or think that they hear in Neruda or Zbigny Herbert. Um, there's a kind of, in, in Herbert, there's a kind of moral gravity, um, intellectual penetration, and uh, an ability in amid great suffering somehow to 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 sing in a, out some kind of lyrical thing. He's, he seems a totally unillusioned man who who um, has a faith in civilization, even though civilization has betrayed him again and again, or he has seen that civilization has betrayed Poland. Um, so, and some people have political reasons for um, translating the, the poets of Nicaragua or, wha or whatever it is. But I, I, I agree with the other panelists that this is uh, uh, basically a very fertile, uh, it's a kind of dialogue across languages. I love your point of feeling uh, the lack. I think that I hadn't thought of it that way and it's absolutely true. Uh, what lack in us do we feel uh, expressed by Basho. And it's important to see that, to own it, Cynthia would probably agree, uh, to internalize it and to see it as a quality which we potentially are cultivating by the very choice of that foreign word. Or, or postures thereof. I mean, I, mean yeah, I, think they're real, I think they're real lacks, but I, and I think that Americans are, I mean, think that Americans need to find authenticity in other cultures is considered a kind of a negative. But certainly, if you look at French literature right after the Second World War, they were happy, they, they wanted all right like Hemingway. And there, is, there was a need they, for a posture to be tough and to write, you know, the, 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 the novel noir. And uh, that, I think that, that that's just this kind of when cultures are maybe tired or just, or just needy, needy. But mm -hmm. it's also occasionally a posture, a, a, an image, kind of an image transplant. Well, here we get onto very shaky ground. What is the difference between a posture and a need? Uh, that's delicate. Yeah, I agree. I would agree.
No, no, no. It, it just, it just that criticism is not just for the author. And if it were, then one could write a letter, and one should. I mean, if you read a book and you think that there's something in it, then yes, you should commend it in print. That would be a good thing to do if you have the print at your disposal. If you don't, you write a letter. But it's not just for the author. And so if you have really no basis to say, this may, this may be good. I mean, that's what you're finally saying. Uh, maybe not, but I think it's probably good. That's, that's the kind of criticism which, which is hidden in by, by most criticism, which I'm not really sure, but it's a lot like X. So if you like X, you'll probably like that. And I don't think that really helps finally bring a poet or any writer along, because it just puts him in a kind of a relativist uni universe which he's in, he knows well enough. No, you're not. You're not. Obviously, everybody writes about first things because you never know if there's going to be a second. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, he's just being an argent provocateur. <laughs> How do you feel about art criticism? You. I know, but you as an artist, what is your view of uh, art criticism, especially cultural art criticism, which puts... <laughs> very unusual situation. 
reminds me of, um, of Congress and, and the government uh, because there's nothing the matter with having everything with you. Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, the, the well, all right, you're not talking about trash, but even non-trash, the book that is a good fledgling effort but doesn't particularly go beyond that, I mean, if all these things are reviewed, I mean, you have to make choices. Who's going to read them? Herb's already talking about this kind of, of excellent review, of uh, uh, rich review, and how many readers are there for the magazine. So they're real problems. We, it's not that what you're saying is wrong. It's that the, we're talking about a small world, and what you call brown-nosing, which I would agree occurs quite a bit, uh, is partly that it is a small world. And if you have poets review poets, there are friendships that aren't, I mean, it's not necessarily a negative to say that somebody does not want to write a review of someone they really like. That's, well, but it happens all the time. I don't really approve of it either, but I think it's human. No, I, I think that you're right, that there are, are some people who are, are timid, and I think the timidity has grown over the last decade uh, in the same way that uh, Reagan anesthetized criticism so, so ably for, for 10 years. Um, we know that Salman Rushdie's life is endangered in by somebody who is, by, by people who are not able to enter in, in the way that we're talking about, enter into the, to the foreign, to the consciousnesses of, of, of other people and seeing the, the, the value of the humanity of that, their otherness, uh, even if it is a, a totally different um, system. Um, but we're, we're really dealing with, also with, with tremendously complicated problems of, of uh, Let's face it, that poetry is not uh, much attended to in this, in this country, or um, I don't think we'll always be that, be that. Maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong.
now? Everybody here. Who wants to read anybody who's uh, a critic who's trying to bully, bully the reader into um, accepting a version of the truth? Um, we have sometimes published some rather uh, violent uh, reviews. Um, Donald Davey, who is a very thorny um, and often brilliant critic, once castigated um, Galway Canal in print for bringing down, but for his Prometheanism, which was responsible, according to Davy, for all of the uh, the evils of not only poetry but probably of, of, of culture. Um, now, I'm in no way subscribed to, to that particular um, diatribe, perhaps, um, but uh, I, I some well, in a future issue would publish a different critic with a different perspective on Canel, who might say the opposite. I think the purpose of any criticism is to open a dialogue. And that means that the reader's mind is as open as, as the critics. But we know, that given you, uh, fractious human nature, the orneriness of, of that, that this particular kind of uh, conversation doesn't always take place. It's, unfortunately, it's much, much rarer. Um, one would like to see it. If that were the case, then all, the, all literary magazines would be packed with uh, wonderful essays. But we know that it's not, it's not true. Sir. <laughs> um, I have published several essays by 
Helen Bendler, and I would be very happy to publish others. Um, yes, there are some people, some people who, who, but her taste, her taste, uh, she would, uh, I think, be the first to confess, is, is her own. Other people have um, uh, sort of uh, extended it uh, into some kind of um, alleged um, authority that every all the rest of us have to follow. And I think the, the culprit was the Harvard Book of Contemporary Poetry, which was a reflection of, of, of Helen Bendler's taste. Um, she left out a lot of poets that y you and I would probably include if we were to do an anthology. Uh, Helen does some things superlatively well. She can um, write about difficult poems and tell you about styles and themes uh, in, a, in a way that's, that's not just classroom, uh, you know, an inspired teacher. Um, and I always learn a lot from those. Um, so I, I, I don't see any reason, you know, Helen Bendler is, is one voice in the Republic of letters. That, that's what, it's a, a demo, democracy is unruly, at least it used to be in, in America, and in the rough and tumble of uh, ideas, um, you know, sometimes um, some people will, will, will make outrageous uh, judgments that will not hold up, and they will probably want to re recant them um, further down the line. Um, there is such a thing, obviously, as politics and poetry as well. <coughs> As, as measly as it is, c since there are not a economic stakes uh, as in the art world or in, in film and television uh, and the like. But uh, the, uh, Wi Williams, who's obviously on my mind, said that, um, that people are dying for, th th there is news in poetry and that we're all dying for want of, of getting it. And uh, there, are, there are people who the Los Angeles Times for a while was not reviewing any, any poetry because Jack Miles said nobody cared about it and, and so on. Uh, he was forced to, you know, he begrudgingly put it back again. Um, poetry, like the novel, is always being declared dead and then rising again. And I myself sometimes succumb, my editorial in the 15th anniversary is called Singing the Fin de Siècle Poetry Blues. But the blues can also be uh, lively as well as just simply sorrowful. One, I, I always enjoy reading Helen Bender because I think, I guess I enjoy reading any critic who really writes that well whether I agree or not, and I don't agree a lot of the time. Uh, one thing that she told me is that she doesn't like narrative. Now I find that very strange because I think narrative is sort of born into us and that all children love a narrative and I wonder what happened along the way. But that, that carves out a big chunk of stuff. If you don't like narrative, there's a lot of work you're not gonna be interested in. But I'm interested that she's not interested.
On this issue of the future of poetry, uh, reminds me of Benjamin Franklin, who, um, when he was living in Philadelphia, there was somebody who kept saying that Philadelphia's population was going to decline, property values were going to decline. He would never buy his house, this house that he could have had for fifteen hundred dollars, and. Um, he eventually had to buy it for 7500 because Philadelphia prospered more and more. Um, Franklin called these people croakers. And he, did, he obviously represented the optimistic side of, of America. And um, there are always these dips in, uh, and usually at the end of, of century, uh, maybe in um, 1990, we'll have our own version of lyrical ballads, which will suddenly st start something revolutionary. Who knows? Um, any are there any other questions? Uh, thank you very much for coming. You'll all join us for a reception that way. Have you any idea what our circulation is? If you want to, if you want to lug it, it's me. I have no idea. I think okay. he once said 1,500. Is that okay?